Section number twenty two of A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Man in the Grey Suit. The Abbe Bruno, who gave his shaven head in atonement for unnumbered crimes, was a finished exponent of duplicity. In the eye of day and of entrame, he shone a miracle of well-doing. By night he prowled in the secret places of Laval. The world watched him, habited in the decent black of his calling. No sooner was he beyond sight of his parish than his valise was opened, and he arrayed himself, under the hedge no doubt, in a suit of jaunty grey. The pleasures for which he sacrificed the lives of others, and his own, were squalid enough, but they were the best a provincial brain might imagine and he sinned the sins of a hedge-priest with a courage and effrontery which his brethren may well envy. Indeed, the man in the grey suit will be sent down the ages with a grimmer scandal, if with a staler mystery, than the man in the iron mask. He was born of parents who were certainly poor and possibly honest, at assez le Beranger. He counted a dozen Chouans amongst his ancestry, and brigandage swam in his blood. Even his childhood was crimson with crimes, which the quick memory of the countryside long ago lost in the pride of having bred a priest. He stained his first cure of souls with the poor sad sin of arson, which the bishop, fearful of a scandal and loath to check a promising career, condoned with a suitable advancement. At Entrame, his next benefice, he entered into his full inheritance of villainy, and here it was, despite his own protest, that he devised the grey suit which brought him ruin and immortality. To the wild, hilarious dissipation of Laval, the nearest town, he fell an immediate and unresisting prey. Think of the glittering lamps, the sparkling taverns, the bright-eyed women, the manifold fascinations, which are the character and delight of this forgotten city. Why, if the Abbe Bruno doled out comfort and absolution at Entrame, why should he not enjoy at Laval the wilder joys of the flesh? Lack of money was the only hindrance, since our priest was not of those who could pursue bonne fortune. Ever he sighed for booze and the blowens, but booze and the blowens he could only purchase with the sovereigns his honest calling denied him. There was no resource but thievery and embezzlement, sins which led sometimes to falsehood or incendiarism, and at a pinch to the graver enterprise of murder. But Bruno was not one to boggle at trifles. Women he would encounter, young or old, dark or fair, ugly or beautiful, it was all one to him, and the fools who withheld him riches must be punished for their niggard hand. For a while a theft here and there, a cunning extortion of money upon the promise of good works, sufficed for his necessities. But still he hungered for a coup, and patiently he devised, and watched his opportunity. Meanwhile his cunning protected him, and even if the gaze of suspicion fell upon him, he contrived his orgies with so neat a discretion that the church, which is not wont to expose her malefactors, preserved a timid and an innocent silence. The abbe disappeared with a commendable constancy, 
and with just that sense of secrecy which should compel even an archiepiscopal admiration. He was not of those who would drag his cloth through the mire. Not until the darkness he loved so fervently covered the earth would he escape from the dull respectability of Entram, nor did he ever thus escape unaccompanied by his famous valise. The grey suit was an effectual disguise to his calling, and so jealous was he of the church's honour that he never, unless in his cups, disclosed his tonsure. One of his innumerable loves confessed in the witness-box that Bruno always retained his hat in the glare of the café, protesting that a headache rendered him fatally susceptible to draught. And such was his thoughtful punctilio that even in the comparative solitude of a guilty bedchamber he covered his shorn locks with a nightcap. And while his conduct at Laval was unimpeachable, he always proved a nice susceptibility in his return. A cab carried him within a discreet distance of his home, whence, having exchanged the grey for the more sober black, he would tramp on foot, and thus creep in, tranquil and unobserved. But simple as it is to enjoy, enjoyment must still be purchased, and the abbey was never guilty of a meanness. The less guilty scheme was speedily staled, and then it was that the abbey bethought him of murder. His first victim was the widow Bourdet, who pursued the honest calling of a florist at Laval. Already the curate was on those terms of intimacy which unite the robber with the robbed, for some months earlier he had imposed a forced loan of sixty francs upon his victim. But on the 15th of July, 1893, he left Entram, resolved upon a serious measure. The black valise was in his hand as he set forth upon the arid, windy road. Before he reached Laval he had made the accustomed transformation, and it was no priest, but a layman, doosely dressed in grey, that awaited Madame Boudet's return from the flower-market. He entered the shop with the coolness of a friend, and retreated to the door of the parlour when two girls came to make a purchase. No sooner had the widow joined him than he cut her throat, and with the ferocity of the beast who loves blood as well as plunder, inflicted some forty wounds upon her withered frame. His escape was simple and dignified. He called the cabman, who knew him well, and who knew, moreover, what was required of him. And the priest was snugly in bed, though perhaps exhausted with blood and pleasure, when the news of the murder followed him to his village. Next day the crime was common gossip, and the abbé's friends took counsel with him. One there was astonished that the culprit remained undiscovered. "'But why should you marvel?' said Bruno. I could kill you and your wife at your own chimney-corner without a soul knowing. Had I taken to evil courses instead of to good, I should have been a terrible assassin. There is a touch of the pride which De Quincey attributes to Williams in this boastfulness, and throughout the parallel is irresistible. Williams, however, was the better dandy. He put on a dress-coat and patent leather pumps, because the dignity of his work demanded a fitting costume and Bruno wore the grey suit, not without a hope of disguise. Yet you like to think that the abbé looked complacently upon his valise, and had forethought for the cut of his professional coat. And if he be not in the first flight of artistry, remember his provincial upbringing, and furnish the proper excuse. Meanwhile the scandal of the murdered widow passed into forgetfulness, and the abbé was still impoverished. 
Already he had robbed his vicar, and the suspicion of the Abbe Frico led on to the final and the detected crime. Now Frico had noticed the loss of money and of bonds, and though he refrained from exposure, he had confessed to a knowledge of the criminal. Monsignor Bruno was naturally sensitive to suspicion, and he determined upon the immediate removal of this danger to his peace. On January the 2nd, 1894, Monsignor Frico returned to supper after administering the extreme unction to a parishioner. While the meal was preparing, he went into his garden in sabot and bareheaded, and never again was seen alive. The supper cooled, the vicar was still absent, the murderer, hungry with his toil, ate not only his own, but his victim's share of the food, grimly hinting that Frico would not come back. Suicide was dreamed of, murder hinted. Up and down the village was the search made, and none was more zealous than the distressed curate. At last a peasant discovered some blocks of wood in the well, and before long blood-stains revealed themselves on the masonry. Speedily was the body recovered, disfigured and battered beyond recognition, and the voice of the village went up in the denunciation of the Abbe Bruno. Immunity had made the culprit callous, and in a few hours suspicion became certainty. A bleeding nose was the lame explanation given for the stains which were on his clothes, on the table, on the keys of his harmonium. A quaint and characteristic folly was it that drove the murderer straight to the solace of his religion. You picture him, hot and red-handed from murder soothing his battered conscience with some devilish requiem for the unshrived soul he had just parted from its broken body, and leaving upon the harmonium the ineradicable traces of his guilt. Thus he lived, poised between murder and the church, spending upon the vulgar dissipation of a Breton village the blood and money of his foolish victims. But for him, les tavernes et les filles of Laval, meant a veritable paradise, and his sojourn in the country is proof enough of a limited cunning. Had he been more richly endowed, Paris had been the theatre of his crimes. As it is, he goes down to posterity as the man in the grey suit, and the best friend the cabmen of Laval ever knew. Them, indeed, he left inconsolable. End of section 22